Hey everyone, welcome back to Sports Arty Snippets. I am super excited for the very first panel episode on the podcast. We have five veteran sports dietitians. We have Amy Friel, Randy Bird, Leah Thomas, Allison Maurer, and Caroline Mandel. And we are talking all about the history of the NCAA food and supplement rules, including deregulation. I honestly asked all of them for their bios to send me to put in the show notes, but they are so incredibly accomplished that it wouldn't fit. And cutting anything down wouldn't do any of them justice. And I know most of the listeners know who they are, but if you don't, please go look them up and read all about them. I'm going to give you their current titles just for reference of, you know, when they're speaking throughout the podcast, just to, you know, kind of have a little bit of background of who is speaking. First up on our panel is Amy Friel who was a founding member of CPSDA and is currently the executive director of CPSDA. Randy Bird was also a founding member of CPSDA, and he is currently the director of sports nutrition at the University of Virginia. Allison Maurer was on the podcast two months ago in June, and she is the director of sports nutrition and fueling for the Pittsburgh Pirates, soon to be going to the high school. And Caroline Mendel is the Director of Sports Nutrition at the University of Michigan. And lastly, Leah Thomas is the Assistant Athletic Director for Student Athlete Development at Georgia Tech. This episode is really for anyone and everyone. I'm so excited. If you are a aspiring sports RD, a current sports RD, or a veteran, I mean, this episode gives you all the feels and just really gives you perspective and appreciation for our profession, you know, where it was, where it is, and where it is going. And just such amazing advice and wisdom that is just invaluable to anyone that listens today. So I hope you all enjoy. But before we dive into the episode, we are talking all about Momentus and their plant-based protein, which tastes amazing. We've all had clients that are in need of a plant protein, and we know it's not easy to find one that actually tastes good, but Momentus has our back. When we're talking about protein powders, we're looking for formulas that provide a full amino acid profile, high quality ingredients that are free of fillers, and a powder that tastes great. Momentus's mix of pea and rice protein provides all nine essential amino acids. It is incredibly gentle on the stomach. Their formula is NSF certified for sport, which we all know is a must. Their plant flavors also mix really well and taste delicious. In fact, their vanilla chai plant protein is now a bestseller. So if you'd like to try the Momentous plant-based protein or any of their products as an RD Snippet listener, you can use the exclusive discount code RDSnippets at checkout for 20% off your order. That's R-D-S-N-I-P-P-E-T-S. Check out their website at livemomentous.com. Thank you so much to Momentous for sponsoring this episode. And let's jump in to our very first panel. Just so inspiring to see and reminisce about where we were and where things have come. Like you forget in a short period of time and it's just amazing at how far things have come for our student athletes and what we've done for the profession. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sports Arty Snippets. I'm Liz Waluka, a registered dietitian and board certified specialist in sports dietetics. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you a sports dietitian guest that will share advice, insight, and rewards of the profession, snippets of their own career path to becoming a sports RD. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, the very first panel episode. How's everyone doing today? Good. Great. Really good. We are ready to go. We have Leah Thomas, Amy Friel, Caroline Mandel, Randy Bird, and Allison Maurer on today. And we are talking about NCAA history of food and supplements, including deregulation. Let's jump in. We're going to start with Caroline. Can you talk about what it was like to educate student athletes in the 90s without any food resources? Well, Liz, let's refer to it as the 1900s. Um, And so at the University of Michigan from 1994 till 2000, so for six years, I was actually an outside consultant and I was not on staff. And I was brought in originally to do some nutrition education with women swimming. And I was a swimmer in college and um, I was a registered dietitian. Um, I think I'd just taken the RD exam maybe in 1993. So I was definitely a newbie. Um, And I was working in cardiology um, at the University of Michigan Health System. And the swim coach had called over to the clinic looking for a dietitian to work with the team. So I started with women swimming and diving. And as soon as other teams found out that swim dive had a dietitian working with them, the calls started pouring in men's swimming, gymnastics, softball, soccer, hockey. Um, And so they didn't really create a position until 2000. So during that time, what nutrition education was like, I mean, keep in mind, you couldn't just do a Google search and find a free downloadable evidence-based credible PDF about hydration or fueling or recovery or supplements. Like there was no Google, this stuff didn't exist. So there was a few really good actual resources that I would use for like ready-made handouts back when we used to do talks with handouts, right? And um, Gatorade had some nice, um, what we called slicks. And so you'd keep this like original copy and you could make copies of that, but you never wanted to lose your slick because it was like a very copy ready version. Um, There was a thing called a hydration pyramid. I'm having like memories here, nostalgia. Um, Nancy Clark also had a pretty comprehensive um, set of education materials for sale from um, education handout slicks. Um, there are these things, children, called slides that you'd put in a slide carousel. PowerPoint and Excel had not been invented. So like, we have to kind of have a context here. Um, and then she also had, of course, her, her sports nutrition guidebook. So not a lot of resources to translate research that had been done and was being done even since the 60s. Um, in terms of bringing that information to the elite collegiate athlete. And so I started working with these teams and they would bring me in and I'd get like an hour a couple times a semester. So, you know, mistake 101 is tell a, a team everything they need to know about nutrition in an hour and only come once a year. So it goes in one year, goes out the other. And in the back of my mind, I knew that Michigan, like any school really needed a sports nutrition program but I knew I was gonna have to prove my worth and create the demand so that I could work within the department. I mean, at that time, the only staff I had access to was like the director of sports medicine, the team doc. Um, On a couple of the teams, I would be able to um, communicate a little bit if I showed up to practice like with an athletic trainer, but those were only like your only resources. Um, We didn't have an academic center as a department then. So our student athletes would go to study table in classrooms up on campus. So for me to 
meet with individual athletes because there were some athletes coaches wanted me to meet with individually and provide medical nutrition therapy, whether it was disordered eating or athletes to gain weight or get lean or just fuel better. I would literally pull them out of study table and meet with them like on the floor of a hallway or in a stairwell or in a coffee shop or something like that. So, you know, having an office and having a performance team around you is just light years away from where I started. Um, for team education, I remember with swimming, on my own, I would schedule like a menu planning session and I would literally go to some swimmer's house and I would meet with whoever lived in the house and talk about like nutrition planning. And then I'd take them to the grocery store and we would all grocery shopping. We'd come back and we'd do a little kitchen like interactive cooking demo and like make dinner. And I would have to go from house to house to house. So it would take me a month, two months to be able to reach the entire team um, at that time to do that type of nutrition education about meal timing and frequency, choices, portions, um, and, and all of those kinds of very valuable nutrition uh, lessons and changes that they could make that would really help their performance in terms of fueling and recovery. So um, having like a real lack of resources, a real like, you know, not having that performance team and having to create my own handouts and, um, you know, be able to only come in and, and have a presence with the team of, you know, a few times a year, I think was really limiting. And I knew that the the capabilities of what I could do and the power of what registered dietitians who um, specialize in sports nutrition, we could do so much more in terms of building the rapport with the individuals and, and having that continuity of care throughout the year and throughout um, an athlete's college career. I'm going to hop in just to interrupt and, and add to what Caroline said. This is, this is Amy Friel, but also remember there were no smartphones. You were not texting athletes. So athletes purely stopped by your office. Um, and that's how you had, I remember as some amazing interactions with athletes because they stopped in. There was this great relationship building that you had with your teams because there was no technology that you were communicating with. It purely was, they stopped by, you saw them, um, you know, in the hallway, I had a small, what I was our fueling station back at Virginia Tech, which was called the Oasis and they'd be in there. Um, but it was, you know, way more relation, not to say it's not relationship building now, but it was very different in the fact that people stopped by and it was connecting that way. No one was texting you. There was no tweets. There was nothing from a technology standpoint that you were communicating with. It was all in-person communication. So one question with that and, um, when I started, there was no email. So to contact people, you're calling on a phone. Oh. Oh. Or if you were invited to practice, you'd be at practice and a million people would come up. Oh, I need to ask you a question. I mean, it, it was, the, the technology is definitely, uh, was a game changer. So question for Amy, this is Allison, for both Amy and Caroline. No, like knowing back then that there was no ability for a student athlete to really come in and like, grab their pre-practice snacks or their post-workout recovery what what did you guys have to do and what did that look like to to get athletes on board to actually do it themselves like now we just know they just show up and they're probably fed because it's been provided like what what was that like I know I pushed a lot of I guess what we would call today adulting in terms of I remember in the summer coming in with football before deregulation and we couldn't do training tables in the summer. Um, 
and trying to educate them about their carb protein ratios for post-lift recovery and muscle protein synthesis. And then having to write out like three different things that they could do and encouraging them to, you know, pack a bagel and peanut butter um, or, you know, to try to get those 20 grams of protein and um, things that they could pack. And they'd have to actually do this thing called plan ahead and prepare, which at the end of the day is, you know, five minutes or five years after college are amazing skills that we all had to uh, put into our own lives as well. So it really is doing the student a favor of teaching them these life skills, which I guess we'll get to it later when we talk about deregulation and so much of these resources being provided, we kind of lose that opportunity of having them do things for themselves. I loved it, Allison. I, I honestly think the athletes stepped up um, in many occasions. They stepped up, they did it. They knew this is what they needed to do to get better, um, stay healthy, stay safe, perform at their highest level. And they stepped up and did it. Um, and then once you know things were provided for them, it's their ability to um, manage their own fueling and recovery has really decreased if non-existent. I was lucky at Virginia Tech, they had what was voted at the time and probably still is the best dining halls in the country. And so I did a ton of education at the dining halls and I would park myself over in the dining halls from like 11 to 1.30 and be there to you know help people like, oh, you're coming from practice. Okay, let's walk over to, you know, to the dining halls. Let's walk over to Dietrich and let's go get, make your plates. And I would walk back and forth from my office with teams as they were finishing practice to go help them learn how to fuel and recover from their workouts. So um, I actually think it's harder with deregulation than it was without deregulation in, in many ways. Like it, it, it was a lot of education based and they were not enabled and they did it because they knew that they were gonna have the edge over their competition um, by having nutrition as a resource. And at that time, Carolyn and I, I mean, there wasn't sports nutritionists. So if your team had a registered dietitian on staff, you were already at a level ahead. And then if you start actually in doing what they are instructing and educating you on, just think of how your performance is gonna be better than your competition. So it, I thought it was easier. And you also had to deal though with the food insecurity too. Uh, so while, while deregulation has created problems that we're talking about, it solved some problems too, because there were definitely athletes that would show up at a three o'clock practice and had not eaten yet. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of that. There was a lot of not being able to afford um, produce or things that would spoil quickly had a, you know, poor shelf life. And so being able to provide a lot of those types of foods, which we all know the nutritious value of, of those type of foods did definitely impact the athletes in a positive way with deregulation. And before that, which I know we'll get to it later, but Leo, Leo will really chime in about uh, the fruit nut bagel legislation that where we could provide some of that stuff. Well, that's a great segue into our next question for Randy and Amy. They're going to take us through the history behind the NCAA food and supplement rules. And then Amy's going to talk about being the first sports dietitian to serve on the NCAA Committee of Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspect of Sports. I know that's a lot of information at once, but Randy, take us away. Sure. Uh, so back, back in the 90s, 1900s, <laughs> right, at, right at the end of the 1900s is when a lot of our food rules uh, came into play. 
Um, so that's when I was finishing up undergrad, going into grad school, right before uh, Amy got to Virginia Tech, and then I got to spend time with Amy there. Um, but honestly, a lot of the rules were put in place to <laughs> limit uh, what people could do to specifically, I would say Nebraska. Uh, Nebraska football was a powerhouse and they fed everybody and fed them well. Uh, so there were a lot of schools that I think were jealous. This is my opinion <laughs> of what Nebraska was doing and knew that they couldn't uh, or they didn't think they had the resources available to, to do what Nebraska was doing. So they put in rules that limited the training table meal to one meal per day. Uh, and then they threw in supplement rules with it, but uh, some of it was great. Uh, the supplement rules previously were basically non-existent. Uh, and you had strength coaches just passing out creatine by the bucket full uh, and kind of forcing it on people and people feeling pressured to take something that they had no idea what they were taking. Uh, so uh, that's where our permissible supplement legislation came into play. But uh, the rule that was really our head banging against a brick wall rule was the 30% protein rule. Uh, they pulled that number, it seemed like out of thin air, uh, that no product that we provided could have more than 30% of the calories coming from protein. And it came from just the guideline that you shouldn't have roughly more than 30% of your total calories in the day from protein, but they narrowed it down to every product to where you couldn't, couldn't provide anything that had more than 30% protein from a supplement standpoint. And at that point, there were four categories of supplements uh, that we could provide that were basically sports drinks. So your carb electrolyte beverage, carbohydrate boosters, uh, vitamins, minerals, and so that's when electrolytes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah they, they broke up the electrolytes. <clears throat> yeah. So it was very, very tightly. You could give supplements, but you couldn't give food. Where, where we were anti, they, they preached, you don't, shouldn't take supplements, um, that you food first, rely on food, rely on food. But here you can give them these supplements, but you're not allowed to give food. Yeah, so it was supplements with tight restrictions um, and then not the ability, um, and Leah will talk to it, but not the ability after practice to hand somebody, you know, a banana or to give them a granola bar. It was okay to give them a supplement bar, a protein recovery bar, as long as it had less than 30% protein. So what we were seeing is a lot of industry was making products to meet these arbitrary NCAA percent guidelines. And then what they were having is less than 30% protein, but they were loading it with tons and tons of carbohydrates. So we were seeing, you know, some athletes gain, you know, we were having weight issues. We were having, you know, some of our players putting on a lot of weight because those products were filled with so many things that an athlete doesn't need to recover, but it met the guidelines set forth by the NCAA rules at that point in time. There's a lot of sugar, a lot, a of, lot sugar of sugar filler. And a lot uh, of saturated fat. Yes. And yeah. these products that 
isn't kind of like along the lines of health and safety. So yes. was it really hard to educate with all of the push on the supplement and then you're just trying to educate, but then it's like, they're not helping you because you can't give out the food. Was that conflicting or was it just what it was? I would say it you wasn't. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, you didn't have the budgets that you have now. Oh, right. So the budgets were significantly less. So if you were able to give out, you know, I'll say like a Gatorade protein bar, your Gatorade protein budget was really, really, really minimal compared to what people are using now as a budget. So it was a special thing to be able to hand out something after a practice as a recovery or a pre-practice. It just didn't exist. So it wasn't as hard as it is now. The, the, the industry, I think supplement industry was much smaller or significantly smaller and so you didn't have the battle. There also wasn't social media. So people weren't having products out on social media. There wasn't that Twitter, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't all of that that athletes were seeing. So it was not like a battle. I don't recall it being a battle like it is now. It was just a matter of always trying to tell someone like, oh, go get some, you know, go grab some chocolate milk or why don't you go grab, you know, some fruit and, you know, maybe half peanut butter sandwich um, and just not being able to give it to them, not being able to hand it over, but trying to help them navigate how to go get this and plan ahead like Caroline said. It's just a huge disconnect between the NCAA wanting to create this so-called even playing field with the haves and the have-nots, but also promoting the health model and promoting health and wellness um, and a food first approach. But I couldn't, like Amy said, you couldn't give a kid a banana. Um, and I had to fight compliance for two years showing research evidence that chocolate milk outperforms other recovery drinks because chocolate milk was a food like you can give them a shake but you can't give them chocolate milk I'm like this is 33 cents a cup and again having no budget it took me two years to get our department to allow me to give chocolate milk prior to fruit nuts and bagels because it was evidence-based Jeez, I mean it's crazy because I feel like just hearing you at the beginning talking about like athletes helping them plan and prepare and a lot of us we do that now within our jobs I don't know any different but I mean, deregulation has obviously done incredible things, but it is kind of crazy to think. I, I, I like forgot like technology and all those distractions now and, you know, that FaceTime of what it really was like and how special that probably was um, compared to all the distractions now. Um, yeah. Anything else kind of during that timeline that you think anyone should know of maybe like CPSGA kind of forming or just maybe up until- Sure. Just somewhere. The so fruit nut bagel, Leah, uh, jump in here. Um, yeah. So the the next the next rule advancement was fruit nut bagel. Then we'll come back to CPSGA and deregulation and the additions we've had from there. But uh, Leah was part of the part of the impetus to actually make some progress in providing some food to the athletes. Yeah, um, and I've been I've been thinking a lot about that timeline. I don't remember what year. I mean, it's probably documented somewhere, I guess. But um, I just I was young for sure in my career. Um, I started here in 2003, um, so it was sometime in the first four or five years after that. But I, I mean, Amy, I just remember always. I can still hear Amy Friel's voice saying, "I mean." I can give them a power bar off my desk, but I can't give them an apple, you know, that kind of thing, just the frustration that that was. Um, and so I don't even remember if somebody encouraged me to do that. Like, it's really hard for me to think back to that young self actually taking this initiative to write a bylaw proposal change, but nonetheless, I did. 
Um, and I wish I could go find, I'm sure it's somewhere. It was in, it was in 2004. Okay. Oh, so I was really young in my career. Yeah. 2004. Um, you were young. Um, (laughs) and, and it was great that Georgia tech pushed it forward. Do you, I mean, like, I think it was where you had the support there yeah. within oh, yeah. your compliance to push it forward. Yeah, that's what I, we, we have an intern right now, actually. And I was telling him all of this stuff in preparation for like getting on this, this call at three. And I said, yeah, it, myself, I wrote, I wrote something about, um, you know, needing to be able to provide food, oh, you know, as dietitians, we like to push food over supplements and what kind of message are we sending? And I, I was telling him, I mean, I remember saying, for example, fruits, comma nuts, (laughs) comma and bagels, you know, dot, dot, dot as my, as my, like, you know, these types of things is what I'm referring to. (laughs) Um, And yeah, whoever was in our compliance office at the time um, was supportive and helped me probably reward it and make it, you know, an acceptable format to be submitted as a proposal. Um, And so that's what we did. And then, and I also think actually at the time, our men's basketball, head men's basketball coach kind of endorsed it and pushed, helped push it as well. Um, And so, and that was the year that they went to the final championship game. So that probably helped to have a, you know, a runner up championship basketball teams, head coach helping. But anyway, nonetheless, that's, that's kind of how it, and I don't remember, Amy, you probably can, like when that went to, to vote and discussion and when it came to be, but it was obviously a very literal translation of what I wrote um, and not, for example, but okay, specifically, you may provide fruits, nuts, and bagels. Um, and yeah, my intern got a good laugh. He was like, so like a dry bagel? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, it didn't, it didn't allow for cream cheese or peanut butter and jelly or, you know, whatever you wanted to put on it. It was of just a very, very literal translation of whatever exactly I wrote with those as my examples. <laughs> and that, that came through like 2007 was when it finally came through because mm-hmm. first two years when I worked at Kansas, we weren't allowed uh, to, to do the fruits and we ended up starting to and our ad is like if somebody wants to write me up for providing apples to our athletes let them go for it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was 2009 it might have been it, it might was have been 2008 little... that it was approved okay. and voted for so 2008 okay. it finally came to fruition you had that. schools you had schools buying peanut grinders yes yeah uh, to to make peanut butter right. um, yes. because we were not allowed to give peanut butter with these bagels but you could give them a bagel and a pack of peanuts, but you couldn't give them peanut butter. I have a so, question. Leah, yeah, oh, go ahead. I have a question too. But when compliance like pushed this law forward, the rule, was anyone like, hey, like let's double check and make sure the wording is, or could you be like, wait, by the way, like we didn't mean this. Like, you know what I mean? Like how did that really just go for so long without like someone like letting you guys speak up or something? Well, let me ask Caroline, Amy, Allison, did you guys hear of this rule, like the process before it passed? Or was it you found out once it passed, hey, we're allowed to do this now? Well, I mean, because I was familiar, like I knew Leah was working on it and we were kind of on the inner circle of it. I mean, I knew it was coming. So yeah, and so when my compliance told me, I mean, I already knew it was coming through the pipeline. But we were were, all young, Randy. So no one thought someone would take it so literal as seriously. No, 
Bagels. Do you know I mean uh, like so? No one knew. So it, it, there was no communication with dietitians oh. at the NCAA level, and even you know the communication of those that are voting and making decisions. We were still such a young profession that yeah. our web hadn't spread so far um, to have some input or be like, oh, we should probably confirm this with you know, that's why competitive safeguards, you know, kind of evolved as well, but there was none of that portion. Um, so no one, I, yeah. I wouldn't have thought you're just giving examples, Leah's like, and granola bars, you know, or like whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, too bad you didn't add a few more things on your list, right? Right. <laughs> so right. That's where, that's where you said it was 2008. So CPSDA, we didn't even have our first informal conference uh, where we weren't CPSGA yet, it was just a group of dietitians till 2009 in Nashville. Uh, we did a pre-symposium uh, as part of SCAN uh, in 2008. Um, but yeah, we we were really a very tight-knit group of dietitians that would meet together at a SCAN conference once a year, uh, have dinner, talk shop, uh, go to a few sessions, but spend more time talking with each other, get back and talk about how much fun, it, how much fun we had together. And honestly, the most we got out of our time there was the dinner where we got to collaborate and talk, talk about each other's days and the problems and struggles that we had and how to work through it. And since so many departments hadn't like created entire departments and like at Michigan, it was me, myself and I, um, so there was all three of us at Michigan, AKA one person, that those meetings were so valuable because we exchanged phone numbers. So I just remember being on the phone because most places didn't have an entire like staff. You didn't have people in the next office or, or on your campus where you could just say, hey, what do you think about this? So um, a lot of you know, long distance phone bills and a lot of calls in between those meetings uh, to just have some sense of support and camaraderie and to grow those programs. Mm -hmm. Leah, can I ask you a question about fruit nuts and bagels? Because I remember hearing the reason why they didn't include spreads is because they didn't want schools to think a filet mignon was a spread. Did someone <laughs> make that up or is it true? <laughs> no. <laughs> compliance, uh, compliance departments ran with it that way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like they didn't want bagel with locks and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, no. and now look at us now with salmon or fish oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when I was at Tennessee, I think I was the first school to buy a peanut grinder. And so yeah. like, I went to, I, I don't know, my compliance officer was awesome. And so he was like, if you can figure out a way, we'll do it. So I was like, all right. So I'm at Whole Foods and I'm like, all right, peanut grinder. So I brought him like the receipt and I'm like, see, I like, I bought the peanut butter but it was nuts and I ground it he's like nope that's not going to work because on the receipt it says peanut butter it's like dang it mm -hmm. so then Nicole White who um is in the profession she's in Florida now she was one of my undergrad students and she was like this is stupid this is a stupid rule so she, she told her dad about it and he bought us a peanut grinder so mm -hmm. that's oh so we God. just started ordering peanuts by the case and making uh, peanut butter and at the end of every day we'd make sure we had like a plastic bag over the nozzle because we had mice so bad in the weight room <laughs> so we had, was, but that's how it was you know so you, yeah you and James Harris yeah mm -hmm. you, you I think were I the two, the punch I think I did you you were the two that uh were able to pull off the peanut grinders I don't know anybody else who actually purchased a peanut grinder outside of you two yeah 
After you yeah. did that, I wanted to, and um, unfortunately, our physician said we have one kid with a, a peanut allergy. Oh, and so they're like, no way, we can't do it. I'm like, I mean, I get it, but. You're like, like can you sit at the yellow picnic table? Can you sit at the peanut allergy table? <laughs> so then, then from there, the Big Ten, I forget who in the Big Ten, Caroline, um, but the Big Ten's the one who stepped forward and said, pushed push some loosening of that to where if it's spreadable on a bagel you can do it uh so we had greek yogurt in our fridge with the bagels because you could spread it nobody <laughs> nobody ever spread it on a bagel but so it was it was something like 2012 ish yep. Yep. um that the big 12 i mean the big 10 um came out and said this is this is how we're interpreting this this is how we're doing it and then uh, I shared that with our compliance and they took it to the ACC and they said, well, we're not going to do anything different than the big 10. So do, do what they're doing. <laughs> uh, so you won't get in trouble for, for doing what they're doing. Uh, so then that's when we started being able to do things like peanut butter with the bagels and the Greek yogurts. Uh, I stretched it a little, um, but but rules were starting to loosen a little bit. But prior to that, I had uh, athletes. We just had different football players buy a jar of peanut butter and stick it out with the, oh. at least I'm, I'm under the impression it was a football player that did it and not a coach. Um, but it's, it's possible that uh, somebody other than myself put a jar of peanut butter out <laughs> uh, and made it, made it available uh for the athletes um amy do you want to talk about being the first dietitian on um the committee and just that yeah absolutely yeah. yeah so things like randy had said had really started to progress um sports dietitians became much more known within the ncaa within those that are making voting decisions and policies bylaws discussions. And so things had started to progress and probably right around 2010, 2011, we've had way more connection with NCAA, really inquiring about the law, the bylaws, what do they mean? Why are we doing this? Um, in 2011, I moved from Virginia Tech to Indiana. And during that time, I had a lot of conversations with Mary Wilfert, um, who at that point in time was one of um, the folks over the competitive safeguards committee um, and was offered the opportunity to sit on the committee as an ad hoc member. So as an ad hoc, there to contribute, um, listen, add to discussion, voice opinions and thoughts, but not a voting member. Um, so I started that in June of 2012. Um, and at that time, there was also um, a strength and conditioning ad hoc member as well. Um, so it was the two of us that were both non-voting, but could provide input and thoughts. Um, and I think at that point really started to open people's, um, in that committee are athletic trainers, team phys physicians, um, medical decision makers, FARs um, that are on that committee. And I think really those folks had started to be in, um, already aware of nutrition and the progress that we had made and like the trailblazing that we were making within collegiate athletics. But then having my seat at the table, I think really 
give them the opportunity to easily ask, well, Amy, what is, what is the nutrition thought on this? Amy, what do you think about the nutrition angle? So somebody in the room being able to, it was easy to have them ask questions of me um, while they were talking through things. The other thing to remember, which was eye-opening for me on this committee, is any decisions that are made at the NCAA level are not just for division one. So we think like, well, yeah, like, why aren't we doing this? This is easy for division one. Any health and safety goes through all three divisions. So it took years to make changes because you're looking at implementing at D3, D2, and D1. Um, and I think that was a different perspective for me. You just walk in thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. Everybody in D1 wants this. We all can do it. Why can't we add cream cheese and peanut butter, you know, or add more food? But they're looking, if it can be for D1, it should be the same ruling for everyone down if it's a health and safety. Same with like sickle cell testing, all of that. It goes through all three levels. So it gets much more complicated than what anybody I think would imagine because you're talking about what can be done at D1 can maybe be easily implemented and financially affordable, but it can't be very easily implemented at D3. And that's where things kind of get um, tightened up and, and hard to move the process forward. So um, it was an amazing opportunity for me to connect. I've connected and networked with a ton of amazing medical professionals um, involved with NCAA schools, um, but also really to have the forefront of putting dietitians and sports nutrition on the map of something for NCAA to be considering when, when looking at bylaws and honestly, athletes' health and well-being. Um, and then after me, um, it became a voting position. So I served for two years and then they made it a voting position and then Randy served on the committee um, in a voting capacity um, moving forward. And then when Randy's term end, ended, um, Auburn Wisensale, who's currently on the committee, um, dietitian from Pitt is um, serving on the committee. Um, and so she has connection back to CPSTA. We help um, have committees that help bring things forward for her um, to competitive safeguards as far as, you know, bylaw changes, wording of documents. So it's great to have CPSDA's involvement continued with the competitive safeguards committee. So is that like where you voted on deregulation or that's not where so, that vote happens? Well, you, sort of. Yeah, it's like we push in competitive safeguards, you approve something to move forward to a vote. So we, within competitive safeguards, would vote, yes, take this to the next voting level, or no. Um, so we had the ability to vote, yes, to take it to those that are the stakeholders to make the decision, yes or no. Okay. Did you all feel like you had strength coaches and athletic trainers? Was everyone like, this is ridiculous, or it just was what it was, and then as like the noise kind of, did it just get louder as the years went on as like CPSDA formed, kind of? Well, so... Yes, the strength coaches um, were loud about it. The athletic trainers definitely thought it was the rules were dumb and that we should be able to do more. But I don't remember hearing too much from the sports medicine side. Um, but you had all this work going on in the background of pushing for deregulation to happen. And then it just took a UConn basketball player to say he went to bed hungry after winning the national championship uh then all of a sudden it's public public news uh even though we'd done all this work in the background <laughs> it was the pressure that he put nationally on it the spotlight that he put uh really was the impetus that pushed it forward faster than had he not said it it 
I think it probably still would have passed, but not as quickly. <laughs> it would have been years. The NCAA really works at a very slow pace, and and you know, and, and not to be super critical, but you know, it's it's checking all the boxes. It's looking at it deeper than just our level of how we look at it. To us, it's a no brainer, but there's more implications. But for everything, they work at an extremely slow pace. I think it would have taken a few more years. I agree with Randy; it would have passed, but. At that point in time, we had social media. Um, we had the person bring, you know, unbelievable attention to it, um, and that definitely expedited the attention and focus. And I think the overall response of, of voting to move it forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, so right. right. I, just, I just googled that um, story. Shabazz Napier. He came out in like April 2014, and I think the vote for deregulation was like August. So I, I definitely think that was a, an incentive for the vote. And I also appreciate, Amy, what you said about, you know, the rules don't affect just D1, but D2 and D3. My daughter is a soccer player at a D3 school. And um, I know over just the past year or so, they've started providing snacks to their athletes. Like, you know, so it's, again, it's, 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 a, it's a budget thing. It's a policy thing. It's a, you know, it's, it's a lot to try to implement. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for story time? Who wants to start first with the, the funniest, saddest story, whatever you got before deregulation that you want to share? Well, if you're looking for funny, you just got to look to the far, my far right of my screen and Maurer seems to have- I didn't know if she was grinder. I didn't know if she shared it earlier. She, she and Jana Heitmeyer would probably set the record for the funniest stories. Let's start with you then, Allison. Take I, okay, so let's see. So my first story, so when I was interning with Robin Leah at Georgia Tech, I was like so excited because I was like, oh, wow, they have animal crackers and pretzels like for their student athletes to come and get a cup, you know, and then there's also the metrics that was the supplement of the uh, 1900s, early 2000s. Yep. Um, and so when I got my first job at Colorado, I was like, and then, but I asked Robin Leah, like how that works. And they're like, it's a carbohydrate booster. So it's not, you know, and, and back then too, the NCAA rules was like, they were super hyper sensitive about an added meal, right? Like Caroline said, that one meal a day that we were allowed to provide and that was it. And so when I got to Colorado, I was like, told my boss, the strength coach, I'm like, hey, isn't this a good idea? What if we had animal crackers and pretzels? We did this when I was at Georgia Tech. It really, and he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So started buying that and like putting it out and our compliance comes down and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's a carbohydrate booster. Isn't this cool? And they're like, that's a secondary violation because that's an added meal. I'm like, it's like, it's a cup. Like it's a, like one of those eight ounce Gatorade cups full of animal carcass. You're like, yeah, we're going to write you up. That's a secondary violation. I'm like, oh my gosh. So that was, yes. So that's what we were dealing with. And then I remember like you guys, Allison, remember, real yes. quick. I think we also said, because we were located in the dining hall. So we called it like, oh. that's part of our training table, even though it's all hours of the day, we, we like lumped it in there. We were not separated in the weight room, you know? So I think it that's was like, right. we had two, two factors there. That's right. So you guys were able to, to double up, but yeah, cause you were like literally right behind the training table, your office was, but, but yeah, so I got written up for that. And then you guys remember the old power bars, like the gold wrapper ones, it was like cookies and cream, apple cinnamon. And so back then too, it was like, you could not provide individual amino acids. 
So every power bar was fine except for apple cinnamon. So apple cinnamon, for whatever reason, had individual amino acids. So I got busted on that one too. And I got written up again. So that's, well, that's still a rule, Allison. (laughs) Yeah. But it was just the whole thing with like that one flavor of power bar. Yeah compared to all the other ones. So yeah, so that was, I got written up for that. And then um, I got Randy in trouble one time. So, so that was, well, because I was, so I was like, you know, that was when Colorado was in the big 12. And so we had met at scan, like the, what, eight of us or whatever. And so we were talking about like, you know, what we provided and Randy had mentioned something about chewy granola bars. So I go back and I'm like, see, like Kansas, they do granola bars. So our compliance calls Randy's compliance and Randy gets in trouble. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm, no more granola bars, no more animal crackers. Uncle, uncle, I'm done. So those are just some of the things that we dealt with. I didn't have a ton of funny stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I remember more the fun interactions and like having Allison come visit uh, in Kansas uh, when she's probably, I don't know, 30 weeks pregnant. Uh, <laughs> and just, just it was such a small, intimate group of dietitians uh, that the CPSJ was, it's awesome now. It was almost like uh, a bunch of cousins uh, I would say when we, when we started before it was CPSJ. Uh, so we had a Yahoo groups listserv, um, before, before CPSJ, um, before 2008, when we did the pre-symposium at scan and there would be what would be frowned upon today as imp- unprofessional, uh, a lot of, a lot of joking, <laughs> It was just it was just a a fun fun time because of the the relationships we had with each other. Uh, yeah, complaining about the dumb rules that we had to deal with and the things like granola bars and peanut grinders and things things of that nature. <laughs> I I remember too, like every time a job came open, which was like not like the CPSCA job board right now, which is on fire. Um, you're talking very rarely a job came open. But like when Dave left Nebraska, I think all six of us applied. And it's not that you wanted to go to Nebraska at all necessarily. It's that you wanted just to pay, like you needed to go apply for another job to show value at your current employer to get a raise. And so I remember all of us like, are you applying? Yeah, yeah, I applied, I applied. Did you get an interview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and none of us necessarily, like I said, were like dying to go there, but it was all this like, how do you like create, you know, an increased salary where you're at or get an additional staff member or all of those things. I mean, it was like you had to apply for a job and they, the jobs weren't, there were no jobs. I mean, there literally were no jobs. People were going and creating a position and you stayed in it. Look at Leah. How long, Leah, have you been at Georgia Tech? Um, well, Jill, this month, I guess, 18, I mean, going on 19 years. Yeah. I mean, so like Leah, when, you know, you start that and Rob was there before you, but she stayed. So in our jobs back then, you stayed in jobs for a really long time. I was at Virginia Tech from 1999 to 2011. 
you you weren't moving positions like people do now. Caroline's been at Michigan for her whole career. Um, and so it was hard to find jobs, but we all applied. Whoever was open, like you didn't even want it, but you applied <laughs> just to try to get a, an increase in pay. It was like one a year for a while. Yeah. It was like one a year. And then, then you applied to Nebraska the second time around. Yes. And when Brian Lehman was given that job, that opened the Tennessee position, which then you bounced to Tennessee. <laughs> yep. And then because I was such a nuisance at Colorado, they actually dissolved my position and hired another strength coach. So. Well, at, at the time, you didn't tell at the time you were a strength coach and yeah. dietitian. Yeah. And what you had with two or three strength coaches leave and they just kept piling on sports on top of yes. you. I think I had, I had volleyball, track and field, men's and women's golf, women's tennis. And then I had to help football. <laughs> Plus so as a strength coach while yes. being the dietitian for the whole yeah. department. Yeah. <laughs> I remember from like the last time the CPSTA like career survey was completed and presented at one of the meetings um, someone put up a beautiful map of the United States kind of showing school by school, like who had programs. And it's like, since the survey had finished to that day, it became like Game of Thrones. Like that map could have morphed. By that day, it was completely different. More programs had added staff. Uh, more programs had created programs. And all of a sudden, it's like the, the rapid amount of change has been phenomenal. Um, and I guess, you know, good, bad, and ugly, I think we owe a lot of that change and growth to deregulation and the need to have professionals on the ground fueling. Absolutely. Leah, do you have a story? I mean, you would think after all this time, I'm sure I have. Wait, I have a question for you. Do you feel like you're like famous for the fruit nut and bagel? Like, do you have like a certificate? <laughs> no. You have like this like award in your office. <laughs> that's fun. no no I never even I don't guess I even up until recently when we refer to that and laugh at it did I even associate myself with it really but but I guess it's true um yeah no I mean I I, I don't know I think back to when my office well I've had like four different or five different offices here now and I used to live up in our academic center after I got out of the cafeteria because that wasn't fun um and so I had this tiny office in this closet that I just stacked boxes of bars in my like cliff bars and balance, you know, whatever cliff bars, except for the caffeine one, just like your, um, your BCAAs, Allison or whatever, the caffeine one. Um, but anyway, and, and people, but the, the closet door stayed closed. I mean, just because no reason really, but I remember people would slowly discover it and they're like, did you know Leah has a closet full of bars in her office? But that was like, I mean, that was it, you know, that was it. And the rest of it was just talk and education, like what Caroline and Amy said. Um, but yeah, that I don't, I'm sure I have a bazillion one stories, some probably inappropriate, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think also I, I, I thought about this as we were talking and I've thought about this before that, um, you know, I, <sighs> It's interesting that I think that sometimes I and some other people on this call are, it's a little bit of a, a disadvantage because, because of being here for so long and not like me personally being here for so long, but the program being here for so long. And we have not seen, you know, I have one assistant that I hired two years ago. And so I feel like we've been so comfortable in, and not to say, not to be negative about Georgia Tech specifically, but just a historic program that's been here forever. 
um, it, we have had a hard time catching up to what's going on. Um, and I don't know, I don't really know how to explain that, um, why that is, other than it's just been established for so long. And our, we, in a way, have a lot of people here, including head coaches that have been here for a long time too. So we haven't necessarily responded. I don't have a staff, I have Chandler <laughs> and that's it, you know, and I still also oversee our life skills program. So we, um, you know, we're, it's interesting how that is. Some of the new programs I feel like get added and are better off than I am. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but hopefully we will catch up one day. Yeah. It's interesting hearing, like, I always forget that you guys have been in your jobs for so long and how you're saying like people two to three years they they go, they're, they're hopping now. And I don't know if it's like a bat. I don't know what to think of it, but, um, Allison, I guess this question's for you, like, or for everybody, what do you think of the enormous job growth with deregulation or just I don't know, just any opinion on where the field was, where it is now, or where it could be going? Yeah, I think it's a blessing and a curse, honestly. Um, and I think, you know, Amy has, um, you know, kind of led to this as well. So because like the job growth is great, I think it's amazing. But I think what it has also created is some entitlement of I deserve more. And so that, I think that is one of the reasons why people just don't stay in jobs as long anymore is because, well, I can make more elsewhere. And, and I think mm. somewhere along the lines, and I don't even think this is specific to nutrition. I think it's just in the industry in general, like it's less about, do I love what I do? Am I in a good spot? That's going to help me grow professionally and personally. And it's more about who's going to write me a bigger paycheck. And you're right. It's unfortunate. And so, mm -hmm. you know, again, like I said, I love the growth. I love how it's happened. I just, I almost wish each individual would just slow down. Like the jobs are growing in, in a, like popping up and that's great, but each person needs to stop and slow down and be like, maybe I'm fine where I'm at. I really like where I'm at. I haven't hit my ceiling yet. My um, administration believes in what I'm doing it might take another year to get me where I want to be, but I'm willing to wait it out um, because the reward will be there versus they don't want to listen to me. They don't want to do what I want to do. So I'm going to go get another job, you know? And like Amy said, we all interviewed for other jobs out of necessity, not necessarily because we wanted to. And so, you know, I think I interviewed for six jobs before I ended up at Tennessee. So it's just, you know, so yeah, yeah there's there's more to a job than the salary um and i think you know looking hoping that young professionals are really looking at like who are my mentors and do i have a great mentor where i'm at and that mentor doesn't have to be your supervisor direct supervisor but it could be an administrator it could be a coach um and looking at really the value of what a job uh, your career or your job brings to you and not just looking at the paycheck like you know what are the benefits i can tell you i left virginia tech in 2011 as a director of sports nutrition over a staff making $50,000. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for a long time knowing I was underpaid compared to others in 2011, but I had an unbelievable work-life balance. I had an amazing um, assistant athletic director over sports performance who was a visionary in my for my field. And I had great support and mentorship. Um, and so a dollar value wasn't worth it for me to move. Um, and I hope young professionals can look at the whole comprehensive package of what maybe you are getting at your current place of employment. And the grass is not always greener. The dollar value 
does not always bring a better job satisfaction, a better career development. Um, and I think you really need to look at those, those other things. I mean, the job growth is crazy. It's great. Um, but I think, I, I hope young professionals can look at some of these other factors um, and really make sure that they're developing themselves, developing their staff, and then most importantly, looking at developing their student athletes to be the best that they can be as athletes and as individuals. Yeah, I mean, good example, my time at Kansas. I loved my time at Kansas. And uh, Virginia job popped open and I didn't <clears throat> apply for it. Uh, so I'm originally from Virginia, uh, went to Virginia Tech, uh, obviously knew, have known Amy for a very, very, very long time uh, since the 1900s. <laughs> so yeah. the Virginia really job popped open. I, did, I didn't apply because I didn't feel like I was done at Kansas. It was more I wanted to get done and accomplish at Kansas. I hadn't seen an entire class of student athletes come through yet. Uh, I wanted to do more. Uh, and then that's when Rob Skinner took the Virginia job. Uh, then in 2000, early 2010, he calls me and says, Hey, <laughs> I resigned today. <laughs> so mm -hmm. be on the lookout. <laughs> uh, this job should be posting soon. <laughs> um, so then at that point, I, I felt comfortable. I was moving to come back home. It wasn't, wasn't moving to, okay. I'm just going to go search, search for money. Um, because yeah, you gotta, you gotta love what you're doing. Uh, and to quote Rob, uh, he always says, if you're not living your dream, uh, get out, get out, get out of the way, let somebody else come live it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not exactly how he puts it, but, uh, <laughs> so that's the gist of it. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I'll add on to all that. I 100% agree, obviously, having been at tech for very long. And there's, a, I mean, I can honestly only think of one other job I ever even kind of entertained. And, and I never applied. I actually just let myself think about it and then talk to the person who was leaving the position. Um, and that's all I ever did. Um, I'm not saying I did it right or wrong, but I will say that I am 100% invested in Georgia Tech. And that I, I think that's a big deal. And I think that it, it shows and people know that here. Um, and then in the opportunities that I have outside of the world of nutrition. Um, now, some of that I can complain about, like th some of the stuff that I probably shouldn't oversee that I do. But nonetheless, I've been given this incredible opportunity because of this history I have. And there's nothing here that I don't know how to do, you know, outside or inside of the world of nutrition. Um, not only that, but I've got three children who were born in Atlanta and we are invested in the city and in the school that my kids go to. And all of that means much more to me than I, I can promise you my paycheck is not reflective of 19 years of being in one place. That's for sure. But I am so very invested in this school, right or wrong. Um, and I, I just... But everybody knows that, like everybody it, with internally and externally probably knows that. So that only helps my effectiveness in the long run. A lot in common, Leah, with I'm starting my 22nd year. I raised my family here. My husband grew up here. Um, if I were entertaining jobs, I would have to leave my family. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of like I'm invested in Michigan and being in Ann Arbor, you know, the way you talk about Atlanta and Georgia Tech and um, and the beautiful thing is like, you know, we've built a program here and I've got 
administrators and colleagues who are just as invested in me. And so, you know, I, I feel like at this old age, I'm very young at heart. I try to learn something new every day and, you know, learn and grow and build on that, you know, the growth mindset that the people talk about with, you know, newfangled talk. And, um, you know, the, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking earlier that, you know, you know, has helped, I think, our program not get stagnated certainly is the changes in legislation and being able to benchmark with what people are doing around the country and going to conferences and just, you know, being creative and innovative. But um, we have a fellowship program where we bring in uh, dietitian fellows as well as being part of the Gatorade SNP program and have had um, several uh, SNP fellows spend their eight months or a year even here at Michigan. And, you know, when they've come from other programs, one of our SNPs had gone to Indiana. Um, one of our uh, fellows last year, Randy, you know her, she was at Virginia. Um, and so they bring in such a wealth of experience, creativity, new perspectives that um, really kind of helps us to keep growing and changing and keeping up with the times or staying ahead of the times and providing that leadership um, that, you know, people I think expect from a Power Five school. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, I think any young professional listening right now will like, not like think twice, but I think, I mean, I think sometimes it's easy to run because there's more jobs open. So I think young professionals, when things get hard, it's easy to be like, well, there's, you know, the salary or there's something else, but I don't know, speaking from my own experience, like, I'm so glad that, you know, I've worked somewhere for four years, which probably sounds like a long time compared to like, I don't know, you know, I know it's not a long time, like not 11 years, but like when things get hard, like it's worth working through it. Like that's the experience you, you get from that versus like trying to find anything that's better. And like you were saying, Amy, like the grass is not usually greener on the other side. And I don't know, sometimes it scares me too, what people would go for maybe to. I think it's really rewarding to, to see a program evolve. Um, I personally only, was interested in ever starting a program, not following someone. Um, I loved starting and growing a program, but I think when things do get hard, it's, it's, or challenging or, you know, stagnant, it's really, really rewarding to see through that and challenge yourself and challenge the other, you know, the folks around you to um, find a way to implement change as small as it may be. I just think it's really, really rewarding to see a program through, but I'm old. So I didn't have all these other opportunities um, to do that. All right. Yeah. Okay. No, so, oh, you go, Randy. Uh, I was just gonna say, yeah, where Amy said the grass is not always greener. I mean, it's it's greener on the side that you water. So the side you're taking care of is where it's gonna be, where it's gonna be flourishing. So. Oh, I like that. Uh, and as Amy said, the jobs just weren't there. I mean, when Allison was at Colorado and I was at Kansas, you had two other people in the Big Twelve. You had James Harris at Nebraska and Amy Bragg at Texas A&M. I mean, at Kansas, there was, when I got hired there, it was only 10 schools. That's it. <laughs> 10 schools in the whole country that had the position. When Leo started at Georgia Tech, I think there were only four schools. <laughs> As veteran sports dietitians, what do you all feel it, you know, was the key to success you know, prior to deregulation and then now as a sports dietitian? I know there's probably been a lot of changes, but anything that you still think holds true? For relationships. Me, yeah. For me, it's relationships. 
building and cultivating relationships with athletes, with coaches, with administration, with NCAA. Um, sports is a carousel. People move around. Um, you build and you cultivate relationships. To me, by far, that is the most important thing you can do. Um, by not building good relationships, you eliminate opportunities for yourself in the future and possibly for others. So I still think that's the foundation of how we started. Um, and it's still very true to a successful sports dietitian. I agree 100%. So, I mean... <laughs> Those of you who know how many coaches and strength coaches I went through at Tennessee, a lot of them, you know, went to other schools and it was, it was nice for dietitians to be hired at some of those schools and for the dietitians who may have already been there when the new strength coaches came in, they already knew, like they had an idea of what nutrition was all about because they'd seen it before. So it's whatever impression you're leaving on those people is what they're going to carry to the next dietitian that they're working with or the next program that they become a part of. So if you're incredibly difficult and, you know, like digging your heels in the sand and not wanting to, you know, be easy to work with or accommodating, then you're setting, you're setting the next sports RD up for a really complicated, tough transition when that coach gets there. So, and that's, yeah, before deregulation, post deregulation, uh, you know, it's, that's a huge deal. And to piggyback on that of what I have said over and over and over is, I mean, it's a lot about attitude. Uh, we're support service. We are ser servants per se. Uh, and that is not about us. Uh, you got too many people in the athletic world that are glory seeking and want to be seen on TV, want, uh, want, want the spotlight and we should be behind the scenes. Uh, everything we do is not front and center, uh, and it should be about other people. It's not about, I, I would say it's not about me. Uh, so having that attitude and building relationships, like Amy and Allison said, that's to me, that's the secret to success in this. And to piggyback off of that, I know that like prior to, um, like being on staff, a lot of it was communication and collaboration that I had to initiate um, because I wasn't on staff. And then after that, um, it was about being present. If I hold myself up in my office doing consults or working on the computer all day, you could get a couple of things done. But the second I would leave my office, go to practices, go to lifts, uh, training table meals, competitions, um, I, I used to joke, I would do the majority of my business and collaboration um, in the parking lot because I would be going from building to building and you would get to run into people that you normally wouldn't see. And those conversations created opportunities. So be present. And I would say also the relationship piece, 100% um, in all aspects of that. I mean, the relationships that I have within this building, you should see the people who come to help me load and unload on Wednesdays when inventory comes um, because it's Chandler's in the weight room maybe and I'm here and, and it's a lot, you know, like we have people in academics and our ticket office and our, I mean, you know, and it, we just have a relationship within this organization that they don't care what they're doing. They drop to come help because they see what's going on, you know? So that's, that's the only way we would survive with the two people that we have. Randy, what did you put in the chat? Tell everyone what you just put in the chat. 
Oh, it was just something that Rob always said too, as uh, Caroline, Caroline had said uh, you had to be present. So uh, Rob said it all the time is if you're there, you care. Uh, so having, having the athletes see you at practices in the weight room, they know you're invested in the program. And honestly, uh, every time I'm up in the baseball weight room, uh, that's where I get more interaction with them. They, Oh, I meant to ask you something. Um, so those drive -bys. Have, yeah, <laughs> drive bys. How so do you document that in the chart? Oh my God. <laughs> so it, yeah, if you're there, you care, but be careful with that too. And that if you're the only one there, uh, you, you shouldn't be going to every sporting event, every, every team's game uh because then then you burn out uh so you got to take care of yourself also so if you're not there you're smart with your time too yes <laughs> good you got to be selectively there i like it all right ready for the rapid fire round there's only there's only two questions okay we'll just go around if you had to choose you can only choose one fruit nut or bagel what would you choose <laughs> Leo, you go fruit. first. Okay. 100% bagel. I'm a carbohydrate girl. <laughs> Caroline? I was going to go with fruit because um, it, it's so we're still struggling to help athletes get fruits and vegetables every day. I'd, I'd go fruit. Amy? Fruit all the way. Randy? Pistachios. Go with the nuts. He's a nut. That's a good choice, actually. I like the specifics. Allison? <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, here's my question. Is it fruit, nut, bagel pre-spreads or fruit, nut, and bagel post-spreads? I wasn't around during that time, so you make Pre-spread. Pre-spreads, then I'm going fruit. And then this is just the question. Was CPSDA supposed to be called, like, what were the other options of the name? Or was it always CPSDA? Oh, oh, oh my goodness. Funny. So I we remember, know. honestly, walking on my son's kindergarten field trip on a phone call trying to decide the names um, yeah. and looking at the acronyms. Spent a long time, um, yeah, we a long time on it. We couldn't do, originally we were just a bunch of collegiate sports dietitians. So we used CSDs a lot. And then uh, oh, okay. there were people that did not like that because it was too similar to CSSD. <laughs> And it was really limiting us on the growth of the yes. organization. So professional. And then at that time, still, we were looking at tactical. We knew that that was an, an avenue yeah. of career growth. So trying to incorporate as many um, sports dietitians working in, within an athletic population. I do remember vividly these conversations, like yes. walking on a kindergarten field trip on the phone, trying to throw out different name yeah. combinations and what the acronym would look like. And is that encompassing? Is that too limiting of, of you know, potential sports dietitians? We don't want to peg ourselves into a small hole too quickly and then have to rebrand. And, and it was a way bigger a, deal than you think. <laughs> trying to find a logo. And then surprisingly, oh. once we decided on CPSGA, there was somebody already had that website. <laughs> what? Yeah. So if you type in cpsda.com or org, uh, oh, it, okay. it's, it was already taken. <laughs> So name, name searches are, yeah. All right, ready for the last question? Yes. If you could all tell your pre-deregulation self one thing, what would you say? 
Are you calling names or are we just going? Well, well you go. <laughs> I would say be careful what you wish for. Yes. Mine is go slow. You can always grow. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Oh my God, this is amazing. Woo! Oh. Caroline, that's gonna be hard. Are you saving that? Like that? <laughs> she took two weeks to figure that baby out. She put hey. up with it. She hey, no. marinated over it, had bone. It, it, it came right to me when as soon as you asked the question, I swear. <laughs> what about you, Amy? I still live on the life isn't always greener on the other side. Like Unless you water it. That's right. <laughs> Can we provide water? Is that hydration? Is that like one of the categories or not? Just With or without electrolytes? Yeah, could it have electrolytes? Where do we fit that in? Well, well, the struggle I'm going to be dealing with is uh, our state uh, is getting rid of for all state or like Virginia Tech, Virginia, JMU, we can't mm -hmm. buy bottles anymore. Uh, so mm -hmm. our water is going to have to be canned. Ew. <laughs> But the grass is totally not greener on the other side. See, the grass is totally not greener in the Virginia side. Don't they make water in those little like juice boxes now? Cardboard box water? I have seen, Noah, I have seen box water. But evidently in Virginia, it's easier to recycle aluminum than it is plastic. So we're going to be transitioning to, they're getting rid of all single use plastics. Uh, Does that mean you're going to get Gatorade cans again? Go back to Gatorade cans? Yeah, they're, they're, they're on the Team Zone website already. <gasps> yes. Wow. Lemon, lime, orange, and fruit punch. Yep. <laughs> What's your, what, what would you tell your pre-regulation self, Randy? Uh, see, that's the, that's the struggle is that the three that went in front uh, actually told my pre-regulation self what I would have said <laughs> or deregulation self. Uh, <laughs> go slow and be careful what you're wishing for. <laughs> All right, Leah. Oh, Allison. I mean, I agree. I think so. I mean, just what Randy said, I think those three summed it up pretty nicely. I mean, I think maybe just, you know, persistence, patience, all that stuff, which yeah, I, I think I have persisted pretty patiently. So, <laughs> oh, well, amazing. Thank you all so much for your time today. This was just so insightful and hopefully, I mean, anyone that's listening will just know that when you go to the CPSDA website and you get a handout, not to take that handout for granted on hydration because it wasn't there in the 1900s. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. like I never thought thinking about that. I'm like, oh, I got this resource, but it started- Think about Google images. There was no Google images to create those handouts there was That's a time true. we had clip art books that you would copy, cut out, and tape to put. Yeah, totally was that. Absolutely, cut out. Microsoft Publisher. That was like the. That was like today's Canva publisher. Yep. I was going to say that's what that sounds like. And hopefully, hopefully everybody can gather from our conversation how much <laughs> we enjoy being around each other and talking <laughs> with each other too. So this is fun. I'm so yeah. glad you put this, this together, awesome. Liz. Yeah. I would echo what Randy said and that like, just, I, I don't know, I think the passion we all have um, and just kind of really not to be corny, but like the love for each other. I mean, it's like long last, long lost relatives when we see each other and 
people did such and continue to do such great work, but these are, you know, some of the trailblazers for the profession. And it's so cool to see where everybody continues to trailblaze. And I don't know, it's just so inspiring to see and reminisce about where we were and where things have come. Like you forget in a short period of time, you know, for me, it's like 22 years what's happened. And it's been like, in any other profession, this is like fast forward, you know, super fast speed, um, warp speed. And it's just amazing at how far things have come for our student athletes and what we've done for the profession. We've grown up together. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much for your time and have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Liz. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Sports Artie Snippets. I hope you found our conversation helpful today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Share the podcast or tell another Sports Artie to be or sports dietitian about it. If you can rate and review the podcast, it really helps the show and is much appreciated. Remember to follow along on Instagram at Sports Artie Snippets to see what Sports Artie guest is featured each week. I'm super excited to bring on my upcoming guests, so stay tuned. I'm Liz Waluka, and thanks so much for listening. Hey everyone, I wanted to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Momentus. Make sure you check out their website at livemomentus.com and use the exclusive code RDSnippets at checkout for 20% off your order. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back in two weeks for the one-year anniversary episode of the pod.